second place finish at the Star City Games uh, Los Angeles. We're going to talk about Discard, specifically Duraz, Inquisition of Kozilek, and Thoughtseize, and then we're going to go over some plays of the week. So, <laughs> you had you had Greg stay with you, how was that? Yeah, so uh, I had the Star City Seattle Legacy Champion stay with me over the weekend, and uh, I think I was channeling the good, you know, the good vibes or whatever... Hippie New Age stuff from West Coast. My board's just all high. Anyways, he stayed over at my place over weekend. Um, pretty much didn't want to pay for a hotel, and he knew me, so he called me like a month ago. And was like, hey, you got a room? I'm like, sure do. That's how it always happens when there's a big tournament, right? That's sure. right. So, you know, his good fortunes and his good luck, he swept the tournament. I don't think he even lost the game in the top eight. I think he just won a clean sweep, 2-0-2-0-2-0, which is pretty cool, uh, it's pretty unusual, unless you're running like super hot, like Liquid Magma. Like me? Yeah. And then I, when I lost. Um, sad times. So yeah, he won the tournament with playing Bug Delver, that was a couple weeks ago, um, that just shows you how late this podcast is, but, um, yeah, so he did pretty well, came down, I think uh, he, uh, he got pretty lucky. So I showed him around L.A. on Saturday, because uh, neither of us really wanted to play standard. Plus it was like 700 people for a standard tournament in L.A. It was almost like the size of a small Grand Prix. So I was like, fuck that noise. Let's go explore L.A. and buy some foreign cards. And we bought a sweet brick ton of foreign cards. Like Simeon Spirit Guides for a buck a piece from Japanese. And Cabal Therapies for six bucks. And... Italian City of Brass from Renaissance for eight. Yeah, it's a pretty good haul. Thanks. Yeah, pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah. It's local too, so definitely appreciate that. Then we went down to LA, uh, go to play in the um, in the challenge or the open trial, especially the open trial. So of course I brought along my trusty Tin Fins deck and uh, even convinced Greg to play Tin Fins. So naturally he goes 4-0 and wins an entry fee for the open on the next day. And I go 0-2, playing against, like, two pretty decent matchups. So, I'm thinking to self, self, this didn't go over so well. What are we going to play instead? And knowing LA, and especially knowing, like, the last couple of weeks, and kind of, like, my finger on the pulse of the format, I reasoned, especially on the back of Greg winning with Bug Delver, that uh, three-color tempo, or three color aggro control decks are going to be the hot thing this week. So I'm kind of reaching to my uh, big bag of decks and pull out... Big bag of dicks? No, 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 no. That's, uh, that's for later. But uh, And I pull out uh, an old favorite of mine, which is Price of Progress. And uh, I know on the podcast here we've talked a lot about uh, ways to hate out non-basic mana non-basic mana bases, such as uh, Blood Moon, or like playing a Wasteland, Armageddon strategy, but uh, Price of Progress is, is usually like a card that's often looked at when a person's first getting into Legacy and checking out, like, hey, what can I afford? Like, what's the cheapest deck? What's the most competitive? And Burn usually pops up. But uh, I, I think Price of Progress has an element that really gets people especially coming from, like, a blue deck. So um, all that led me to play Blue-Red Delver. I had it kind of sleeved up from a couple weeks ago. I played it at a local event. 
wanted to test it out. Um, I saw Andrew Schneider um, had a pretty good finish back in uh, Cincinnati or Ohio or Nashville, somewhere in that central portion of America. And uh, it looked like a lot of fun. I put it together, played it in the local, got like first place without really trying. Played against the Lance deck, and that was just always funny. This was like two mana, I win the game. Um, two yeah. mana, instant speed, Korean spell, win the game. Yeah, I didn't quite have it pinned out, because, I mean, it is just sitting in an old burn deck of mine that literally built, like, seven years ago and hadn't ever taken apart, because it's always... This was like a good loner deck, you know? Kind of like Belcher. Belcher with uh, Stomping Grounds, which, oddly enough, made Top 8 in Los Angeles. It wasn't my deck, unfortunately, but I think the... How, how did it feel to play the best one-drop in Legacy? Brainstorm? <laughs> <laughs> Ponder? Because you bricked on all of those. Lightning Bolt? Yeah, that's true. You, I, we saw you do very poorly with those cards. I think you only you only saw the finals game, although I did miss a lot of Delver triggers. Um, so yeah, I played Have blue red. I played blue red Delver, and uh, I actually showed it to Patrick Sullivan the night before on Saturday evening. I'm like, hey, I want to play. I think I'm going to play this. Ten pins didn't really go so well, so I showed him the deck, and he's like, it looks good, it looks pretty sweet, you know, because half the cards are pimped out, you know, black border, German. Volcanic Islands and Korean Brainstorms and Ponders, especially the White Border Brainstorm. And Lightning Bolts and Snapcaster Maze and all the good stuff. And he's like, whoa, whoa something's missing from this deck. You should add Kataxi Pro. I'm like, really? Like, I understand, like, cycling and maybe the information might be useful, but, like, take out days? And he's like, just cut any three cards. Like, literally just pull the deck out, pull three cards at random, add the Kataxi Pro, you'll be set. I'm like, I'm a little skeptical, but kind of take that to heart. Go home with, uh, with Greg. End up trying to find like food on the way back, which is impossible. I like because it's like 60 miles of suburbia stretched out end to end. And um, so instead, we're like, okay, let's let's add the four and kind of square up the deck. So pretty much eliminate all the useless slots. Uh, kind of all the dazes never looked back. Uh, trim the spell pierce, I think, and trim the lava mancer, which is always kind of shaky in a combo meta game. Um, sleeved it up, ready to go. Pretty much first round was, uh, round one was when I first kind of playtested it in my typical fashion. And, uh, in the tournament, I think round one I played against a mono blue Omnitel deck. And, uh, of course, playing red for red elemental blast is always useful there. I think in the second game he also multi four, so it was kind of an easy street. And then in, and in match two I played against a reanimator deck, traditional. Um, didn't really put much uh, resistance against me. And as soon as I saw in two, I was like ready with uh, spell pierce and force wills. Just attack with Delver and attack, and lightning bolt to close the game out pretty early. So then I played against Jund, like traditional Jund, punishing actually. And uh, Price of Progress does an immense amount of work in that matchup. I would, I would think so. Yeah, I think this is essentially what I built the, the deck to beat. Um, pretty much getting ready with making them, or allowing them to build up a, a mana base, and, you know, kind of hiding the price of progress from discard with brainstorms and ponders, and then at the right time, or when I've kind of nugged them a bit here and left, there and that, oh god, the scotch is starting to take effect, left and right, <coughs> then, uh, you know, finally pop them for good, so that was pretty easy, nice clean 2-0 there. Round 4, I played against Punishing Maverick, 
so again, another punishing fire deck. Uh, against this guy, uh, I wasn't able to resolve a threat, considering all of my creatures are 2-2 two, two or smaller. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's usually an issue. So, um, fortunately he was mana screwed on color and lands, so he didn't have enough mana and he didn't have the right mana in one of the games, so that gave me an opportunity to sequence like a bunch of creatures out on the board and he couldn't remove them all. And then uh, finished up with some lightning bolts off the top. Uh, that usually does a nice clean sweep. Uh, then in round 5 I played against Merfolk, Mono Blue. Um, with Cabin of Souls and Vita Bolts. And I don't think he ran Wastelands. But I could be mistaken. This one was actually a little tricky. I think I lost one game, and I think in the third and deciding game, I went down to one life from a couple of Mutavolt attacks with Lords. Um, pretty much I was on super defensive mode and using Lightning Bolts to kill creatures at that point. And my opponent basically bricked um, drawing creatures for a couple turns. And I think one of the turns he played like a five mana Silvergill adept, which was a really good sign, which meant he had no more creatures in his hand, considering all the creatures tend to have Merfolk type. <clears throat> so, based on that, I was able to sequence a couple of Snapcaster Mages with Lightning Bolts, and clear the way, and flipped a couple Delvers, I think uh, one of them got bounced with Echoing Truth along the way, and, you know, attack for three, attack for three, bolt you, bolt you, you're dead. So, got pretty lucky there, there was a lot of tight sequencing plays was able to pull through. Round 6 I played against Sneak Attack, uh, Show and Tell. This one's actually on camera for the whole Yeah, I think map. we all, that's when I started watching you because I got a text from Sam saying, oh my god, Kobe's on table 1. Yeah, um, I was on table 1, played against uh, one of my friends, Kelvin. He's on Sneak Show. Um, I think this is the game where I did the uh, very clever surgical extraction play to, uh, to grab the the polluted delta that I knew that my opponent had in his hand. And I think this matchup actually shows really well where Gitaxian Probe and Information um, really help out. Because I was able to use the information from Gitaxian Probe and Surgical Extraction on later turns to essentially keep track of what my opponent was up to. And that's where I found the weak point was going to be mana. And taking out the cantrips also means that, um, you know, he's not, he's going to essentially be praying to the top of his deck. And, uh, in game two I lost because I forgot to keep Delver back. I didn't actually realize that until I saw the replays from uh, and then Patrick Sullivan kind of commentating. So I guess I deserve to lose that game. Um, and then game three I was able to pull out pretty easily. There's uh, not really much of a contest there. Then the next round, so at this point I'm 6-0. I'm feeling pretty good. So round 7 I played against one of my friends, uh, Jeffrey A. Bong. He's a big time Arizona player. I think he, he and his twin brother operate the Arizona Magic uh, Legacy series. So They're pretty good at uh, Legacy. They've been well versed. They've been playing for years and years just like I have. And uh, I always confuse the two because it's Jason and Jeffrey. They both start with J. And I know one of them always plays Rug. And I assumed it was Jeffrey because the other guy always plays like a Stoneforge Mystic deck, and usually he's not at the top tables undefeated, so I assumed it was Rug, so I kept the hand as though it was Rug, 
And it turns out he was on death and taxes. Which uh, ended up me losing game one because he ended up running two Brina's uh, King of Cats, or whatever that, his actual title is. King Oreos? King of Oreos. Yeah. Yeah. King of Oreos. Yeah, yeah. So GT equipped King of Oreos means um, I'm taking a lot of damage and I can't really remove it easily. So I lost that game, but then I came back games two and three, took out all the counter magic because it was useless, added pricer progress, uh, added some more, added some lava spikes because I needed to close the games out early. And I think Smash is some range, which is an MVP in that matchup. Um, they have so many targets between Aether Vial and all the equipment, uh, which usually tends to beat you very quite handily. And my opponent also had Aether Sworn Cannonist, so I got both creature removal and damage. That was pretty awesome. So, um, that was round seven. Feeling pretty good. At this point, I'm undefeated. I can double draw in. So, it uh, took like a couple hours, relaxed, had an ice cream, a five and a half dollar ice cream cone. That was, uh, that was a pretty sweet convention for you. And, uh, got ready for top eight. So, and then from there, it's pretty much all on camera. Um, well, at least half the matchups are on camera took a while. I think I played like two and a half hours straight in the same seat. Um, which means by the time finals started, everyone was like hounding me to to start. And I'm like, dude, I need to, I need to stretch. I had to get out of the seat, take a little walk. A little sweaty, a little tired. Yeah, a little, uh, a little ready to go home and sleep. I think at this point it was like 11 o'clock. And I'd been playing Magic for uh, just about 13 hours. So it was a pretty long day. Um, it was a lot of fun. Obviously, winning is fun, but uh, yeah, I took a uh, took a while uh, a drive on the wilder side with uh, Delver of Secrets. And, uh, I can see why a lot of people like this this card. It uh, wins games quickly, especially when paired up with Lightning Bolt. So I have a question for you, though. Your deck choice and the the actual construction of it, the sixty. Or than the 75. Would you change anything for another tournament? Um, if I was to run the same list, which uh, I probably wouldn't. I mean, I probably wouldn't take this list again. Um, that's just kind of a, a habit I have, which is not repeating the same deck uh, two tournaments in a row. But if I was to change something, I'd probably change the sideboard a little bit. Um, I feel like... I don't know what I would put in, but... I would probably take out one of the Lava Spikes and maybe add like a um, Swan Song or um, maybe a Develop or something to deal with um, enchantments. Maybe like a Null. Something like that. I feel personally like there should be more Price of Progress. Because two in the main seems okay, but I would rather have three or four. I, I actually didn't find it um, all that useful. I mean,. I realize it's in the deck and it's like meant to punish non-basic -ma non mana bases, but I don't. I can't recall throughout the whole tournament winning a game directly off the back of Price of Progress. Um, a lot of times it, it came down to just a series of top deck bolts, and my opponent was at six or seven, and pretty much just trying to find a way to attack, and then bolt, bolt, you're dead. So I think throughout the tournament I was considering like. Lightning Bolt, Chain Lightning, and Lava Spike all were kind of like time walks in a sense. You know, they, they just reduced the 
amount of time needed to close the game out by one or two. And I think that had a lot more significance than, you know, just setting up a play where my opponent plays the fifth land and then he's just dead to us in the spell. I don't think I even snap cast um, Press of Progress, which was the entire purpose of the deck, really. That's unfortunate. It, it truly is. I, I think that was like the whole plan, you know, play a deck that can essentially cast four lightning, uh, four Price of Progress, and uh, I never ended up casting it twice in a row. I think that's another reason why I don't really want more Price of Progress, because the deck already has the capability of casting it four times. If you're casting it more than four times, do you really need it? Well, congrats. However, I guess we're both stuck in the room of uh, second place. Yeah, this is actually my second second place finish at a uh, Star City Open. Um, well, they do say nice guys finish last, and I guess in the race for first, second is last. I, I consider myself the first loser of Los Angeles' largest legacy tournament to date. Perfect. If nice guys finish last, uh, I have never made it to round six of a Star City Open, so uh, y'all must be assholes. <laughs> You're too nice for your own good is the problem. That's. I guess so. Just letting spells resolve, which you should not do. Especially not when you have counterbalance and play for good triggers. So, Matt, uh, what do you have lined up for us today? That was kind of my tournament report, but... Uh... Well, tournament report, well, we were... We were going to try and talk to Greg Mitchell, the winner of Star City Games Seattle. Because I, think I, actually... I think he might be drunk on the floor of tequila. Yes, he's actually just returned to Seattle, so we may actually have him on later in the cast. However, I actually picked him to win it at the start of the day. I told him uh, going in that I thought his build was really good and he was going to win it, and uh, he did. So I'm just saying that I can call him. Well, why don't you give me a call and say, "Hey, you're gonna win this one," instead of like, "Hey, uh, I'm not gonna keep, I'm not gonna let you know, but you're actually gonna get first loser." I did actually send you a text saying something about the fact that you were awful. Yes. I'm looking at my phone right now. Hold on. Yep. Yep. Something about you being awful. Yeah. Glad. Uh, glad to have a vote of confidence here for my podcaster <laughs> cohorts. <laughs> uh, it would have been actually pretty curious if uh, you had won. So basically, anyone that had touched like one of the uh, everyday eternal crew, or or even so, better, like, one who had like it's pretty much like a like a spark, right? So you pass it on. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that would have been fantastic. It's just like, oh yeah, Greg Mitchell was staying with me, and he won last week, and I won this week. So it's like uh, I crash at someone's uh, Charlotte Invitational room, guaranteed to win. Yeah, who wants to stay with you now? We. Who's gonna fly you out to Charlotte now so you can sleep in their room? Well, if that would have happened, I could have actually made that argument. Probably gotten a few offers, so... We'll wow, see. that would have been awesome. I would have just been awesome to, like, you know, two legacy experts uh, winning back-to-back. Both of them in a Tin Fin's background. I think that's really what's done it. Uh, I, I'm sure that's exactly that's what helped exactly. you. Uh... The deck is actually a pretty good learning tool um, to try to figure out how technical magic works and how to, like, anticipate certain matchups. So I'm sure I could, you know, gush about the deck for hours and hours on end. But um, I highly recommend it if, uh, if you're kind of getting into Legacy and want to improve your technical skills, like pick up the deck. Uh, I don't recommend kind of tweaking with the numbers uh, from the stock list, just because just I think that provides the best learning environment. And then from there, kind of slowly playing uh, scenarios and trying to figure out what kind of outs you have and recognizing when you have an out and when you don't. 
overall uh, though. Overall, um, had a lot of fun. Got uh, got some pretty sweet prizes and got a lot of uh, sweet camera time. Also uh, made a shout out to Everyday Eternal on my profile. That was excellent. Yes. So uh, hopefully we'll we'll have some new listeners here. Uh, should be a good roaring time. So I think what we should actually get for the cast is uh, we should get dress shirts monogrammed with our initials and the Everyday Eternal. So EE on one sleeve, initials on the other. Okay. Thoughts? We'll work on that. No. No. Okay. We'll sleeves. Sleeves are. Well, how many colors will the shirts be? Because EE for two is not that great. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think what, on two is pretty uh, pretty good. You hit Goy. I guess Bob, it depends on the whoa, young I just got answer, four for one yesterday. Foptor uh, Foundry and Sword of the Meek, you get them both together. Uh, Man. Luminarch Ascension, in case you're fighting against Miracles. I don't know why I have Miracles on like, the fourth one of my mind. Stoneforge Mystic why you're and GK. Ascension and Miracles. Oh, man, you hit so many I got 4 for 1 yesterday out of 43 lands. He hit uh, Tarmogoyf, Sylvan Library, Stoneforge Mystic, Scavenging Ooze. Yeah, ni- nice way to uh, to break apart your uh, mana curve there. Yeah. It's, like, it's like you haven't ever played against Counterbalance and designed a deck to try to beat Counterbalance curves. I can beat Counterbalance no problem. It's called Abrupt Decay. I can beat Counterbalance no problem. It's called Main Deck Red Blast. Lol. <laughs> cheater, <laughs> cheater Miracles. I like Cheater Miracles. You know what? When when you lose with Cheater Miracles, you lose really quickly. Yeah, it's like, oh man, I played against Jund and I have all these Red Elemental Blasts in my deck, in my hand. Because they I always show up in your hand whenever you least... I played in a tournament last month where I kept an opening hand with a Red Blast in it. Guy plays turn one Forest Lanwar Elf. I'm like, well, <clears throat> this card's terrible. Draw. Oh, it's another Red Blast. That's just absolutely wonderful. I basically just <laughs> mulliganed this game. Um... Speaking of times to, like, good times to play Cheater Miracles is the Star City Invitational, which is happening right now, actually. Um, day one's just been completed. Um, I think we see a field of, uh... uh Garbage. It's a, yeah, it's a split format, so it's really hard to, like, say, these decks are awesome, these decks are not. Let's so not talk about standard, because... no. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> I just got a text from Greg Mitchell. Man, are you hassling him? Up. <laughs> Tell Greg to get back here. Tell that taxi driver to go faster so we can get him on here. Uh, I think he needs a little space. He's been with Sean all week. Oh, God. <laughs> but imagine, he also lived with Sean, like, for years. Yeah, maybe that's why they partied in Mexico. Together, Wee. drinking tequila. Uh, I'm sure I'll have a similar story to Sean and France story. But... Very homoerotic. Anyway, the point something, is... Something about horsemanship. Yes, riding the Dilu horse. <laughs> Anyways, anyway. Matt, what, what kind of topics did you have for us? So today we actually wanted to cover some stuff that actually got lost in some crazy technical difficulties. Uh, we're talking, going to be talking about discard stuff, because Sam wanted to talk about it. So, Sam, do you want to lead us into what you wanted to discuss? Well, as a blue mage, I obviously love drawing cards, so let's talk about the complete opposite, which is people taking cards away from you. There's a lot of different stuff we could talk about here. Um, We've obviously had an entire episode about Cabal Therapy. Um, When me and uh, Kobe initially talked about this, we said, you know, we could talk about three cards for three hours, just three discard cards for three hours. So I'm going to focus mostly on Duress, Thoughtseize, and Inquisition of Kozilek, but also just kind of how 
how you play this card, what cards you want to use, when you want to use them, which decks, and so forth. Now, I know in the last attempt, before everything got corrupted and crashed on us, uh, we're kind of going with chronological order. I think we should maybe flip that around and first start with Thoughtseize, which is the most kind of broad-based discard. Thoughtseize is awesome and I love it. Why? It can take any card. Does it matter that it costs two life? Most of the time, not. At least for a mid-range player, I'm trying to tag a specific card that I'm looking for, or just anything that's going to be good against me. I can grab anything from a Stoneforge Mystic, a Noble Hierarch, a Jace the Mind Sculptor, Humility. I can grab anything at any mana cost that's not a land. Okay, so let me, let me give you an example, Matt. I, I like examples. Our listeners may encourage that, too. Um, suppose you are playing your... Uh, your junk deck, right? Correct. So, like, green, white, black, kind of mid-range, seeking to, like, um, squeeze out small advantages with card advantage spells or you know, timing or wasteland or all the good stuff. All the um, non-blue things, how we gain right, advantage. Right. Uh, and suppose you're up against um, what you discover to be a uh, blue-white and possibly a third-color stone blade deck. Yes. Um, when would you want to cast Thoughtseize? Well, I think it depends. Uh, if I'm on the play, I'm on the draw, what's going on in the game state, if we're in the middle of a game, what's happening. Ideally, I open my hand and I see Thoughtseize. Uh, if I'm on the play, and I know what this person is playing, I know that it's a Stoneblade player, I'm going to try and open up with a Thoughtseize. Ideally, probably off a basic swamp, if I can, if the rest of my hand allows it. Why? Um... In that matchup, I want to grab Stoneforge Mystic. It, ideally, if I don't have a piece of removal, I want to grab Stoneforge Mystic. That's my that's my main grab here. Why, why is that? Why would you grab the Stoneforge Mystic? Let's say the hand contained a Force Will, Brainstorm, um, Stoneforge Mystic, and a Source of Plashers. And then the rest yeah. are lands. So, I mean, yeah. It, it all, I mean, it really depends on how good the rest of the hand is, and can I deal with, with the thing that I initially cast thought sees in mind with, if that makes sense. So in my mind I'm thinking, if the thought sees resolves, I want to grab Stoneforge Mystic because I don't have removal, but if I see the rest of the hand has something else, then that's different. So, so, so you're pretty much you're, you're saying like, once you have information in your opponent's hand, you're able to kind of put together your next few lines of play or next few turns um, to maximize your chances of winning. That is exactly what I was trying to say, but not coming out correctly. Yes. I want to see what lines of play this other player has, what they can do, and how they're going to react. So if I take their Stoneforge Mystic in a hand of, like you said, you know, Brainstorm, Force of Will, Swords, and Lands, well, they're going to start brainstorming and looking for stuff. Since they're on the backpedal, I know that I should start to play aggressively to try to leverage that advantage as much as possible. Would there be any... Would it make sense to maybe grab the Brainstorm? Uh, let's yes. say if you have removal in your hand, like a Swords of Flashers or a Brevin 100% I would try to, if I had removal for the Stoneforge Mystic, so say I had a Swords of Flashers in hand, uh, I would 100% grab the Brainstorm. Why? The Brainstorm allows them to dig out of a particular situation. So, I so- say they successfully resolve Stoneforge Mystic and suddenly now have a better Skull in hand. It it could be prudent to Swords of Plowshares, the Stoneforge Mystic, and then... Uh, Thought sees away the brainstorm or the piece of equipment. Uh, again, depending on what's going on, just so they can't try to dig for other stuff. So they can't have any more answers. 
Okay. Is there? I mean, okay. Let's 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 uh, do like a follow up question. All right. Um, is there any time where you would want to maybe hold back on a thought seize, let's say cast it on, not on turn one, and maybe find a little information from your opponent, uh, maybe cast it on turn two or three? Well, I th- again, I think it really depends on the deck. Uh, if you don't need the information or you feel like your hand is strong enough and you're on a very proactive plan, then holding off on the thought seize might be okay. Um, so say I have a hand that really wants to go into, say, turn two Liliana, um, and I have a Deathrite Shaman. Going Deathrite Shaman, Liliana, and then Thought Seize you later could still be good, because you're still going to be taking a threat or an answer of theirs. So I think I think you really have to kind of read your hand and see what matchup am I in, what is my hand or deck trying to do at the moment, and what is my opponent trying to do. And then you can try to see, am I disrupting their game plan, or am I on my game plan and trying to take away their answers to my game plan. Good, good, good. All right, so one of the things you said, uh, going back to when you very first uh, started talking about Thoughtseize, you said, for the most part, you don't care about the two-life. What? Who does care about the two-life? Well, I mean, I, I don't have to hog this as well. Like, Jacob, what do you think? What decks do you think would care about the two-life, considering you have played decks before that play Hand Disruption that aren't necessarily Thoughtseize? Right, so in the discussion, I mean, there's a wide variety of discard available uh, in the format. Um, like Sam mentioned, we already discussed Cabal Therapy in a prior episode. Um, so we have essentially multiple options. We've got uh, Thoughtseize, which can take any card. Matt kind of elaborated on that. Um, Cabal Therapy can take any card, provided you have the correct information. So that requires probably a lot of uh, prior knowledge or format knowledge or maybe even like hand knowledge um, to ever discard or maybe get taxi. We've kind of already touched up on that. But what if, for instance, you're playing a deck that relies on its life total, such as like an Ad Nauseam Tendrils deck? There, Thoughtseize is of lower importance because you're not really concerned about your opponent's creatures. You're more concerned about their non-creature spells. So, for instance, in a, in a combo deck, um, specifically like a Ad Nauseam-fueled combo deck, which is both... Epic Storm and Ad Nauseam Tendrils. Um, in that kind of deck, you're more interested in maybe stripping your opponent's hand of disruption, so maybe taking their discard or trying to find information and, and strip a counter from their hands, or uh, maybe even take like a counterbalance, for instance, or a stifle. Anything really to take away their disruption to give you the best possible odds of getting your engine online. And killing your opponent before they have a chance to respond. So, in those situations, a duress may be more important than a thought seize. Because, specifically, you don't really care if they have a Stoneforge or a Tarmogorf or a Delver Secrets in their hand. You're just looking to make sure your spells resolve. And, come to think of it, if you're really scared of a specific card, you always have Cabal Therapy to name the card that beats you. Right. But, again, we're not focusing on Cabal Therapy because... Of course not. We could probably talk three hours about them all. Well, and uh, one thing you pointed out is that you're going for specific cards. Obviously, Thoughtseize is much more general. Um, I've noticed that, especially when Deathblade first started becoming more highly played, Duress became a lot more played, primarily because what you were trying to Duress is not their Stoneforge Mystic. It's you wait until they play their Stoneforge Mystic, get an equipment, then you say, thanks for letting me know there's an equipment in your hand. I'm going to Duress it away from you. Right, so... Essentially, there's a lot of free information in Legacy um, being given out all the time. 
uh, a deck like Delva, for instance, is worst defender at that. It's pretty much telegraphing you. If it doesn't flip, you know it's a creature or a land, or possibly an artifact. But that's very low chances. Um, and if it does flip, well, that's free information right there. You should make a note of it and um, assess how much damage or how much disruption that's going to cause to your game plan. Um, so maybe uh, maybe a deck like Jund um, usually sideboards the rest where they need extra disruption against spell-based or um, usually spell-based uh, strategies, for instance, like combo decks or heavy control, which doesn't rely on creatures. So what about a card like Inquisition of Kozilek? Where does that fit into the spectrum? Sam? Well, I think the the worst thing about Inquisition of Kozilek is that it doesn't get Force of Will. That's probably the single worst thing about Inquisition of Kozilek. After that, your stuff that you're trying to hit over five, really, there's there's not that much stuff. The stuff there is is really big and important, but you've got ab- above three mana, you've got Jace, Ad Nauseam, Force of Will, Batter Skull. Batter Skull. Not a lot else, though. Or at least not a lot else that sees a ton of play. So then the question is, what are you hitting? Trunin Nemesis, you're hitting all the other equipment, Stoneforge Mystic, Deathrite Shaman. Every creature in the format. Yeah. So you get to hit both non... You get to hit, sorry, both creatures and non-lands. Non-creature yeah. non-lands. I think, I think Inquisition is a, is a prime example of like a really efficient spell that has actually made a, a, a significant impact in Legacy. Specifically for decks like Esperblade or Jund. Um, I think Jund generally tends not to play Inquisition specifically because they need the generality of Thoughtseize, but um, for instance... I think more than that, you don't want to cascade into Inquisition when you know they have nothing that you can get. Yeah, but that's also that an issue with Thoughtseize or Duress as well. Um, I think specifically like a deck like Esperblade, which you do end up seeing Inquisition because you specifically want to line up your discard with, let's say, the fundamental turn of the game. So, um, suppose you're playing against a, uh, an elf deck or whatever. It doesn't really matter what you're playing against. Inquisition will usually take precedence over Thoughtseize because in the first two or three turns of the game because your opponent won't be able to generate the third mana um, to get outside the reach of Inquisition. Certainly, that's a very good point. I mean, also, too, I mean, I usually see it or think of it as a spell that's in addition to Thoughtseize or with a split with Thoughtseize. Right, and we see Esperblade utilize that uh, that kind of trick a lot of times, uh, mostly because it can't really afford to play for Thoughtseize. It already runs, like, Force of Will, a million fetch lands. Um, granted, it has Deathrite Shaman sometimes to, to kind of help out or sympathize, but... Sometimes it doesn't even need the four thoughtsies. You know, Inquisition is flexible enough where it can eliminate both creatures and spells that it makes it good enough, maybe as like a two or a three. And Inquisition also gives you, like we've talked about, the information where you can say, okay, I've seen their hand. They can't have drawn, like, if, if they would have drawn something amazing, they would have played it. So you can wait two or three turns before you then say, okay, now I'm going to spend my two life in Thoughtseize and see the rest of their hand and see how the rest of this turn is going to go. Right. I think another example of that is, um, for instance, a deck like Pox, uh, which may not be like a format tier one deck, um, it is still pretty popular, especially with like maybe older 
players who remember playing old Monoscore. I, I, I jammed a bunch of games with Pox today, and let me tell you, I hate that deck. It's really annoying. Wait, do you hate playing it, or do you hate playing against it? Playing against it. So I was playing Miracles. The guy I played against, he went, uh, turn two, he ritualed, or turn one, he inquisitioned away my counterbalance. Turn two, ritual into Liliana. Turn three, uh, Chains of Mephistopheles. Turn four, Nether Void. We played another about 15 turns. I didn't cast a spell the entire game. Yeah, that's pretty unfortunate. That's uh, usually how ga games against Pox goes. It's either Blowout and Ivor Direction. So they either line up all their spells, like, one, two, three, go, or they just sit there, like, twiddling their thumbs as you J-slot them out of the game. Um, but a deck like Pox generally will tend to use Inquisition over Poxies because their life total is actually relevant enough um, where they need to preserve that life total. And they don't really care if uh, you have Force of Will or... Um, usually Force of Will. I think they are concerned about Jason Batterskull, now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, I know the local Pox player for us always plays four, uh, four Thoughtseize in the main and then Duress in the board. Well, and one point, though, is that... And, of course, this depends, because there are a lot of different Pox builds. But if they're playing, you know, like, four Sinkhole, four Wasteland they probably don't care about spells over three that much because you're never going to have the mana to cast them. Right, That's I think Pox, maybe Pox is a strategy like the actual namesake, um, the card Pox, really punishes anyone who goes above three or above that, um, like that third multiple. So anything above three means they sacrifice two lands or discard two cards. Anything above six means they lose three um, as part of that transaction. So... That's generally where traditional pox-based pox decks, which sounds kind of odd when you say it out loud. <laughs> I, w I would say most modern pox decks are actually more of a small pox deck than a pox deck. Um, but that's an aside. But their whole strategy is make sure that you don't operate above three mana for the entire game. Well, uh, in preparing for this, I read a, a lot of the pox thread uh, just because if you're going to talk about discard, what deck's going to talk about it more than the Pox thread? And uh, I found it interesting, most decks don't run more than one of the card Pox, just because between him and Small Pox and all the targeted discard you've got, playing Pox is just kind of a waste, almost. Right. I think the uh, the original premise of the Pox deck, uh, before Small Pox was printed, was only to cast Pox whenever either you have card advantage from its resolution, or from... You know, if they have like four, you know, magic numbers were four and seven. So like for instance, Swamp Ritual Pox was a good play because it was minus three cards for your opponent. Um, so yeah, I mean, Pox is kind of a fringe strategy. It's not really, doesn't really see a lot of play, um, let's say in the Star City metagame. It does see some following in the smaller metagames, let's say like your, your local 20 person tournaments. Uh, you might have one or two people playing that, just, you know, because they really... It's also, it can be built as a very budget-friendly option, which is another reason that I think it's, you see it more at, like, a local level, just because it hasn't been weeded out by five rounds like it would in, a, like, a Star City or a GP. Right, exactly. Um, whatever, I know we have some more discards. What, what about him to Torak? Matt, you want to touch up on that a little bit? Well, I mean, so some of you may have seen the card Hymtrock before. You know, two black mana. Target player discards two cards at random. So the question is, oh, is this that's better? Like, it's like card advantage. 
Yeah, it's almost like you spend one card to get them to muck two, and depending on what they do, you might get two random cards, or you could get a Force of Will and a blue card. So Also good. Most also of the time, I'd, I'd be happy with that. I think my single favorite thing about him to Turok, as someone who played it at one point, was playing him to Turok in a Termoglyph deck, because usually him to Turok gave Termoglyph plus three plus, uh, plus three plus three, which is pretty good for two mana. So, I mean... The randomness aspect is what is what makes him really interesting, and it's and it's kind of the difference between all of the discard spells. Is it you know are you getting targeted discard, are you getting random discard, or are you getting chosen discard? And I think in the order of kind of what I want to see is I want a chosen discard first. I can pick what they discard. I want a random discard next, and then the my least favorite one is they get to pick what they discard. So him being a, I can randomly hit both their lands and screw them out of the game, I really like. What I don't like, two mana, at least for me in a mid-range deck, can sometimes be a little bit full. That slot is a little bit full with other cards like Tarmogoyf, Stoneforge, Mystic, Sylvan Library, Dark Confidant, etc. However, as you'll, as the listeners may have noticed, a lot of the Bug Delver decks are running him to Turok instead of Thoughtseize. Well, why? You can capitalize upon the card advantage that you gain from it a lot better in a Delver deck than you can, say, a mid-range deck like Jund. Jund just wants to hit certain cards and kind of keep those kind of game winners of their opponents off the table, whereas a Delver deck is trying to, you know, quote-unquote, gain tempo. Jacob? Right, I think, I mean, I think the Bug deck, or sometimes called Team America, depending on the construction, um, prefers to utilize Hintatwark just because it is that card advantage spell. Um, most of the time by skipping out on playing Stifle, for instance. So, being being down on Stifle, which has a lot of utility as like a mana denial strategy, um, they opt to go for a little bit slower, so I'd say they're probably about a turn slower than Rugdolver. Um, but, they're also, they essentially trade that functionality by going for having more hand disruption. And Hymnotrack is pretty much the only one that provides card advantage off that. I think that's a pretty good reason to play Hymnotrack. Uh, maybe also you just like to be a miser and try to hit your opponent's lands when you have like three wastelands in your hand to follow it up. And your opponent's oh man, that's... Yeah, and your, lo- your opponent is locked out of mana for essentially the rest of the game while you beat him down with a 1-1, uh, in my case, but usually a 3-2 Delver of Secrets. Well, like, let's talk about, I know, I used to play uh, him in a deck that played Mox Diamond, and when you go turn one him to Turok, and, like, a two-land hand is perfectly acceptable in Legacy, when you go turn one him to Turok, you hit both their lands, they might not do anything for the rest of the game after that, it's just... Him has that much possibility to be backbreaking. Right. I think uh, going back to the Pox example, for instance, um, a typical play in two, the year 2003 would have been like Dark Ritual, Duress You, pull whatever card you have that's feasible to take, and then him to Torak with the hopeful option of pulling two lands and send you back the entire, essentially mulligan to four at that point. That was like a, an old traditional play. No, and I mean, Hiptrock still sees a lot of plays really good. Um, where is it not good? Well, I think the most obvious case that it's not that great is when they've got something like Brainstorm where they can hide their most valuable card. If they've got one or two cards they have to have that they can hide. Um, the other time is when they've got, you know, when they've got a full grip of seven, your odds of hitting what they want to keep, just they get obviously they get worse and worse over time. 
and when they've got seven, you just kind of go, oh, well, that's that's fine. I've pro- they've probably got three or four cards that they want to keep, so it doesn't matter which two you get. What uh, I think this now might be a good time to kind of talk about the advantages of discard in general, and then maybe after that we can talk about some of the disadvantages. And, uh, maybe, and in fact, let's flip that around. Let's first talk about the disadvantages, because Sam brought up a good point about Brainstorm being so prevalent in Legacy. So I think, yeah, the most obvious disadvantage is that it can be combated in multiple ways. So in addition to just counterspelling it like you would just any other spell, you can do things like hiding cards or I know that I know that there's a discard spell coming, so I'm going to float something good on top with my Sensei's Divining Top instead of drawing it, things like that. That's, I think, probably the bis- biggest disadvantage of, uh, of targeted discard or discard in general. Another one is uh, any time that a card can come back from the graveyard, effectively blanking your discard. So, for example, if you hit a land with him to Turok and they've got a Crucible of Worlds out, like, congratulations, you did absolutely nothing with that discard. Or if they've, you, hit a, you hit Lingering Souls, like, okay, Lingering Souls once is still pretty okay. Right, so I think between Ponder which allows you to kind of stack the top of your deck, Brainstorm, which allows you to hide stuff on top of your deck, and Sensei's Dividing Top, which allows you to essentially peek at the top of your deck. Um, Between those three, you essentially have ways to mitigate uh, the effect of a discard spell just by carefully playing around and asking yourself the question, what if my opponent casts a discard spell and takes my best card? I I think the main problem with discard at the moment is it's all sorcery speed. Yeah. Now, yeah, that, that's, you, a, that's a very good point, actually. I mean, because really, I mean, the whole the whole problem is stack interaction. You can't interact with hand disruption on the stack, so they can top deck their card. But really, it's about it's about the stack. Um, if I were able to thought seize at instant speed in response to one of their brainstorms, thought seize would be much, 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 much better. Well, and we can kind of get off to. There's a lot of different places that discard goes where it becomes more hand control than anything else and you can say you know there kind of is thought season instant speed vindian click kind of yeah and there's but a that's lot a blue, of other that's options a blue like card. That. we're talking about black cards here. <laughs> like no sam no cards that you play will be talked about today that's right <laughs> um so i think uh one thing that may be relevant in terms of this discussion of pros and cons and maybe a way to kind of bridge between either it's a con or a pro is the idea of a reactive strategy, which is uh, typically like uh, counter spells or removal, versus proactive strategy, which is how do I essentially break apart my opponent's game plan before it even starts? So, Matt, well, do you want to elaborate down on, on a little yeah, bit on that? Yeah, so, I mean. Counterspells are inherently a reactive strategy. You have to wait until your opponent is playing something and for it to be on the stack for you to have some sort of interaction with it. Thoughtseize and other hand disruption spells, on the other hand, are very proactive. You're going after their hand, you're looking at cards you're choosing, and you're making them discard. Also, the key difference is, sure, by opponent by an opponent playing a certain spell, it could telegraph what they have in their hand, but you don't get as much information when you counter something as opposed to you get to look at your their hand and choose something. So, in my opinion, each kind of has its uh, its deficits and benefits. With a counterspell, you get that instant speed interaction, but you don't get any information. 
or much less information. Whereas with the proactive hand disruption strategy, you don't get the instant speed interaction, so you do lose out on that, but you do gain the information of what else do they have in their hand. Which is actually a pretty good point into kind of talking about the um, advantages of discard strategies or even discard spells and playing their discard spells in order for maximum effect. Um, which is one of the most important things that they provide is information about your opponent's hand. And, um, I mean, we discussed it earlier during my tournament report. Just the knowledge of your opponent's hand, let's say with a Gitaxian probe, is actually enough to shape, let's say, a reactive strategy or a semi-reactive strategy to better sequence your plays and make sure that your uh, your options are best aligned against your opponent's threats. Another point I'd like to make, especially on the comparison of uh, of discard versus counterspells, um, is that while the most popular counter or the most popular uh, discard spells are semi-conditional, like Duress or Inquisition of Kozilek, they're not nearly as conditional as a lot of the counterspells in the format are. Like, Spell Pierce only hits certain things. Spell Snare only hits certain things. Uh, Daze only works if they didn't leave any land open. Force of Will requires a blue card, and so you can hit a lot more stuff with a discard spell than you can with a counterspell, in general, with just because so many of the counterspells are conditional. Right, and the idea the idea there is that you're able to essentially, let's say you spend the mana on your turn, but now you have more or less perfect knowledge of what your opponent's working with, which means that, let's say you, you peek at a hand, and your opponent has no creature removal. Uh, now might be a good time to deploy that Deathrite Shaman, or Tarmogoyf, or Stoneforge Mystic, and you're essentially able to more or less time walk your opponent. You know right away there that uh, your opponent can't really react to it, what your strategy is doing. Um, it could even be done, let's say, if your opponent has only one piece of removal, let's say a lightning bolt, and you're able to strip that removal and clear the way for your creature, which is now becoming a huge threat for your opponent to deal with. Matt, would you like to add some more to that? Eh. I... Sam? I have one more very, very corner case where uh, where discard is better than, than counter spells. Discard happens before your opponent's turn, so it doesn't contribute to storm count. That is very narrow, but it, true. It's very narrow, and it is but... It is, it is significant. I've lost many games by being one short or one mana short. So I do agree that uh, in specific matchups, for instance, storm, or... Uh, Here's another example. Suppose you're playing a green, black, whatever kind of deck. So Death Red Shaman, Death and Decay, as Karsten uh, Cotter would describe it, um, which pretty much puts you on Death Red Shaman, Abrupt Decay, and probably some sort of discard. Possibly even Liliana, which we'll discuss in a little bit. Um, let's say you're playing against a graveyard strategy, and you cast Duress. Your opponent now is left in an odd choice whether they are going to. Uh, let's say it's an Entomb, right? Are we going to cast the Entomb putting, uh, for instance, Grizzlebrand into the graveyard when you have Deathrite Shaman out? Or are we going to let it resolve? It's essentially a, a choice between bad or worse. And you have to make that determination um, how they're going to develop their game plan in light of that disruption. So, 
the combination of Deathrite Shaman and the Discard spell may actually be enough to break apart most Grazenor strategies. I mean, I think, personally, that I really like Hand Disruption. The only problem is there's too many times where you just lose to the opponent playing off the top of their deck, and there's nothing you can do about it. What I would like to see going forward is possibly some sort of not not anti-blue uh, hand disruption, but something that punishes a blue player for using hand disruption. Or an instant speed hand disruption, or a piece of uh, hand disruption with scry on it. Now, I could imagine hand disruption with scry, but when, I'm think- when you're saying instant speed hand disruption, I'm just thinking... Compare what they do now with hand disruption. How much would that have to cost to be instant speed? It wouldn't be just black. It would be one in a black. Well, I think we have some examples of that in Piracy Charm and Funeral Charm, both of which give you instant speed, non-choice, non-random discard. So, for instance, you cast it during your upkeep and you just say, Hey, opponent, discard a card. I don't care what it is, but discard a single card from your hand. Which kind of leads us into, like, Liliana, in a weird, off-tangent kind of way. Which, um, I wouldn't really consider this a discard spell so much as a strategy that really is trying to cut the opponent off from meaningful options. More in a way, similar in a way that I would describe, let's say, a control deck, which is limit the options that your opponent has um, to win the game. And uh, Liliana specifically does that very, very well because... Her, her two uh, first, first two abilities are actually quite relevant, um, both in an attrition sense. I mean, I personally, I like Liliana, but I think the only reason that people plus one is so you can get to the minus six. That's... The, the plus one is still very, very good. Yes and no. Like, a, a free, a free you, you lose one every turn, even though it's going to be the worst card in their hand. Especially in the strategies that are playing it, you've probably already pulled some other stuff out, or they've tried to counter stuff, so they're probably going to be relatively low on uh, low on resources. Sure, already. you do limit their hand size, but ideally, I mean, I'm living in a dream world here. I would like to duress them every turn. Every time I plus one, I get to duress my opponent. But yeah, well, then Liliana would cost like seventy six black mana. <laughs> well, and be banned in modern. That's fair. Yeah, I think I think depending on the deck strategy, Liliana offers two choices really. Um, on an empty board, the plus one is brutal, um, generally because it's either going to be a control or a combo deck, um, or perhaps you've locked your creature-based opponent in an opportunity where Liliana gets the plus one now, which uh, is really bad as a creature deck because now it gives you two opportunities to go minus one, minus two, minus two which means you have to counteract it by casting three creatures over two turns. And that's generally hard when your opponent's Liliana's going plus one. Or... Well, especially, in, like we say, like it's hard to uh, evaluate any of these in a vacuum. If they're playing Liliana, and you're talking about playing three creatures over uh, two turns, you're probably wastelanding their mana away and things like that, where, it's going to, where you're making it even more difficult to play three creatures in two turns. Right. I think the Liliana strategy, more or less, is very similar to Pox as an archetype, which is you're seeking to deny your opponent resources on all fronts, so both in the hand and in the battlefield. Um, and those tech decks generally are going to be quite tricky to build, um, 
and still be a tier 1 deck, because you have to keep that in mind that the plus 1 is symmetrical, and your deck should be able to handle that as well. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different options in terms of discard, and we've barely touched the surface on them. Um, really how each of those discard spells, or maybe in the case of Liliana, um, are going to depend on each different deck and what the strategy, what overall strategy is going to go for. So definitely be mindful of that and um, try to see how best to fit them in. Any last thoughts, Sam? Yeah, like you said, we've we've barely scratched the surface, and I think this goes into we could get all into hand control and talk about you know things like Vendayan Click or things like Jataxian Probe, and then we'd get into like a three-hour long discussion that no one would listen to except me. And yeah, I th I think uh, we've we've covered discard itself quite well, especially after an entire episode of Cabal Therapy. Uh, if you disagree with us, let us know, and we can uh, any further questions or comments you have, we can definitely. Uh, expound upon. I mean, I'm a big fan of Discard. I'll talk about it all day if we need to. Well, Matt will be a resource here. He'll be able to answer all questions on Discard. I am definitely on Team Thoughtseize, not Team Force Will. Alright. I, I definitely like the rest just because it's in a sweet old border frame and looks pretty sweet. Zhvang in German. Sam, nice. what's what's your favorite of the, uh, of the bunch? Um... The ones I have, I actually, I've been defoiling, but the ones I currently have are the uh, the promo ones that are the Urza's art in the old board. Oh, the FNN oh, nice. Duress promo? Uh, I think they were arena promos. Yeah, close enough. And then the FNM was a different one. The oh, FNM that's right. The yeah, the FNM is art. the new border. Definitely my favorite is the is Thoughtseize Russian Lorwyn. All right. Well, well it, so so you're a, a lore when thoughts he's got. Yeah. Yeah. You like the fairy ear. Cleaner? I really like. Pardon? You like the fairy ear cleaner? I I definitely do. I had not realized that's what that was until about a year ago. I really like though. I saw somebody did an altar where the text box is the rest of the elf's head. Hmm. I don't think I've seen that. Pretty cool. Um. So let's get on to our final topic here, which is play of the week. Matt, why don't we start with you? Possibly recurring segment, play of the week. Um, okay, so punt or, or good? Um, like what? Either, either way. way. Interesting play of the week. Okay. Interesting so I would, swing either way. I would say the most interesting swingy game I played in the last few weeks was I was playing against Mono Blue Omnitel. Now, I've played against this deck with Junk many, 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 many times. And I have sideboard cards for this. Guard Charm, Gaddic Teague is really good, I have Croson Grip, it's perfect. Okay? So we play, and he goes show and tell Omniscience, I have Gaddic Teague. I feel okay with this, because to get around it, he needs to have Cunning Wish in his hand. Now, I can't obviously control everything, but I'm hoping that I can shape the game enough that I can kind of squeak it out. Nope, he has Intuition, and he has three Emrakuls in his deck. And then he just casts it and kills me. We played seven games. I cannot beat the Omnitel playing three Emrakuls. I'm not sure why he built it this way, except just to beat me. That is what he said. This I have build... a suggestion, but uh, maybe it's going to fall in death series. What's, no, what's your suggestion? Insnaring Bridge. In Korea. I have those, but he also has Bounce. So I would need Ensnaring Bridge in Korean, Gaddic Teague. In Russian. Yeah. And I need to have these all out at the same time and have him not have Cunning Wish. In his it sounds like maybe you need Brainstorming. 
No, no, no. <laughs> um, let's see. What was another good play this week? Let, I'll come back to me and I'll uh, I'll think <laughs> okay. of something that happened that was good enough. Uh, Sam, why don't you go next? Alright, I've got two. First, a very short one. I was playing EDH today, and I won a game off Felidar Sovereign's ability. Felidar Sovereign is a, uh, it costs four white-white. It's a four-six Vigilance lifelink at the beginning of your upkeep. If you have 40 or more life, you win the game. So someone passed the turn back to you without dealing damage, and you won? They couldn't do anything. I had killed their entire board. Huh. How about that? And I, uh, I played a, I was playtesting Vintage earlier, and I had a hand that, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I basically played a bunch of Moxen, tapped them for mana, Hercules Recall, play a bunch of Moxen, Tendrils of Agony for the win. Nice. I love a good flashback. I love a good flashback Tendrils. It's always good. So my play of the week was actually from my round six feature match on Star City. And uh, we'll post a link or maybe even embed the video so you guys can see it. Um, pretty much, my uh, I was playing against uh, my, my buddy Kelvin. He was playing on Sneak Show. And it got to a point in the game where I had an opportunity to use Surgical Extraction to essentially eliminate, I think it was Brainstorm or Ponder uh, during his end step after we kind of fought over... A, yeah, it was, de it was definitely a Brainstorm. After we fought over it... Um, pretty much just trying to lock him out from cantripping effectively. And so on my turn, kind of the whole plan was um, to snapcast it back and get the most out of the surgical construction. So during the resolution of our first one, I saw that he had both polluted delta in his hand and his graveyard, and he didn't have any extra lands in his hand aside from that. So what I decided during the game was that knowing the sneak attack side of the matchup, knowing how they need to get to three or four mana to just become effective, um, I snap main phase, snapcast, surgical extraction, targeting the polluted delta, essentially locking them out of additional land resources from the deck and hand. And uh, that ended up actually winning me the game because Kelvin was locked out of mana and locked out of cantrips. Pretty, uh, pretty sweet line of play, and we'll be able to check that out in the video replay. Matt, did you uh, actually, finally gather your thoughts? Yes, I remember something that happened. So I'm on Miracles, my opponent is on Bug Delver. He gets an early Liliana and starts ticking up, so I know that I have to slowly make my board as symmetrical as possible, so he can't really screw me out of anything. So I have two tops, two islands, and two planes. So, he ultimates... Splits them up, no problem. Um, keep going. I sort of amass, you know, six lands and a top, and... Anyway, I have an Entreat floating, and I drop a Jace. So, he has to tick up again, try and get rid of that Jace. So I'm sitting there floating Entreat, going, okay, well, I don't have enough lands to make it a big enough Entreat. Gonna kill him this turn, he's got other stuff going on. Anyway, comes to the point where I have a Plains, I have three lands a Flooded Strand, a Top, and a Jace at 8. And he goes, Ultimate, Liliana. And I go, in response, float all the mana that I can. Now, trying to do the Jola set, you know, float all this mana, draw with Top, when he lets me keep my Top. But he says, okay, not just Top, you can keep Top and all your lands, or Jace. And I think for a moment, I think I've screwed myself over with this Fetch Land. 
because there's no way that I can interrupt this sequence in case I have to sacrifice all these lands to crack this fetch line to cast the Entreat the Angels. You know, I should have done it before. Silly me. So instead, I do the gutsy play of just keeping the Jace at 8, and I win. So the choice was uh, pretty much no threat versus Jace. Yeah. Versus the best card printed in the last 10 years. So it felt good. Liliana versus Jace always is a tricky one. And so far, the answer seems to be most of the time, just pick Jace. Yeah, especially if you, I mean, you're able to play around the Liliana by sandbagging lands in your hand. Sometimes. You have to be, I mean, at at some point you just have to start brainstorming aggressively with Jace, too. Just so you're able to keep those extra resources after Liliana ultimates. Um... What else do we want to talk about? I think that pretty much wraps up the... That's about it, and we're at about an hour ten. Yeah, and uh, cut out all the dead space in between. Should be uh, good to go. Um, so let's sign off. So uh, thanks again for tuning in to another wonderful hour of Everyday Eternal. I'm Jacob. I'm Sam. And I'm Matt. Thanks for tuning in to Everyday Eternal. Thanks for listening. We appreciate your feedback. Email us at everydayeternalcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash everydayeternalpodcast, and follow us on Twitter at EternalMTG.